Well, you guys ready for the word this morning? Hallelujah. Let's go ahead and pray as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. We thank you uh, that we have the opportunity to come together as a congregation next to one another, side by side, to worship you, to spend time in your word, to learn uh, what your word says. And, And we're just so grateful for that, Lord. So this morning, I just pray that every single one of us is ready to receive what you would have for us, that our hearts are open, that our eyes are open, and Father, that we would grow and mature this morning, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Praise God. Well, we're going to go ahead and uh, finish or, or continue on in our, our study of the book of Hebrews. And I was hoping to, to do the whole chapter 13 today and we'd finish it up, but it turns out that that's just not going to happen. There was just too much to go through. Um, so we're only going to make it through the, the first half of chapter 13. And if you remember last week, as Pastor Joseph was speaking, we were, uh, it kind of ends, the author ends with some commands from to pursue, pursue peace and holiness. And then he begins, he begins to shift gears a little bit here in chapter 13, and we're going to start to see some commands from God regarding uh, our Christian social, private, and religious life. How many know that, that God uh, uh, has some opinions on how you should live your life? <laughs> And by opinions, I mean uh, commands on how you should live your life. So, uh, uh, and we're going to talk about some of that today. And it's funny, if you read this, it's almost like at the end of the chapter, he's like, man, I have so much stuff to cover, and I'm running out of time, so he just shotguns everything. It's just like one after the other, command, 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 telling us how to live our life. And it's, it's almost like he just tacked them on the end. He's like, I want to talk about this stuff, but I'm, I'm running out of ink, or my, my scribe's hand's getting tired or something. But the reality is, is as, we, as you look at the, this, this letter... And what we've learned in this letter, right, we've talked about the supremacy of Christ and the supremacy of of his priesthood and the supremacy of the work that he accomplished versus what was accomplished in Judaism for us, right? It was the once and for all sacrifice, and he gave his life so that we could be changed and made new, and everything he did was, was, uh, was better than what was happening in the Old Covenant. When you learn about these things, when you understand these things, you begin to recognize that your life should probably look a little bit different. So this isn't like a a tacked on thing on the end. The reality is is that, that our lives should look different. Lives lived by faith don't look like lives that aren't. The life that you live now after you've been born again should look different than the life you lived before you were born again. And the life that you live now should look different than the lives of those who aren't born again. If you can't tell your life is different, if people look at your life and your coworkers' life and you're saved and they're not and they can't tell the difference, there's a problem. Your life should look different. A life that is lived by faith should look different. And what he's going to begin in this chapter is to show you what a life lived by faith looks like. Amen? So he starts off, With let brotherly love continue. This is 13, verse 1 and 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So the first command we get in verse 1 is to let brotherly love continue. So one of the things you have to understand is the early church was facing some pretty severe persecution. 
And, and, and people hated them. If you think about this, they're part of a, of a religious community that when they left, they were ostracized, they were persecuted. And then uh, uh, for those of them who weren't part of the, uh, the Jewish community and they're part of the Gentile community, now they're picking up something else that nobody likes them for that either. So these people are being persecuted and they're experiencing hatred from the world. And the truth is, is that this was to be expected. This, this wasn't a surprise for anybody. This is what uh, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 21 through 22. He says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you're like, man, that sounds pretty harsh. That doesn't really happen, does it? Well, look at some of the Muslim communities when they try to exit the faith. They're, they're ostracized and their family tries to kill them. In verse 22, Matthew 10, verse 22, he says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but to the one who endures to the end will be saved. The truth is, is that if you follow Jesus, there's going to be people that don't like you. And if everybody seems to like you, maybe you look too much like them. The reality is, is that we're going to face persecution. We're going to face hatred as Christians. And thank God in this country, it's actually quite minimal. In some ways, I think that's a detriment to the church. We were praying this morning, and I, I keep thinking, uh, every time I talk about this idea of gathering in the church and how we have so many people that are still aren't coming, either scared from COVID or they became too complacent because of what COVID caused, and they're, and they're, they're con content with catching an occasional sermon online, and they don't have any fellowship in the church, and they don't have any part of this, I'm just heartbroken because they're missing out on something that is so important to the church. You know, the reality is, is that my wife and I, when we got married, we became one. You and I are going to have a hard time having a relationship if you don't like my wife, because we're one. You get the whole package. You can't hate my wife and love me. It doesn't work that way. And the same is true for the church. You can't love Jesus and hate his church, because the church is his bride. They go together. But there's so many people that are missing out on that. They're not coming in and they're, and, they're, and they're somehow content with what's going on and they're just missing the point. They've become complacent. But as we continue back to this in the early church, they were facing persecution, they were facing hatred, but it shouldn't look like that in the church. You see, the church is a place where believers should be able to come and feel accepted and feel encouraged, and feel loved by the people around them. And when I say loved, I don't mean it like the world means loved. Sometimes love means you're going to get corrected. Sometimes love means that you're going to get challenged. Love does not mean agreeing with everything that everybody does, and approving of everything that everybody does. That's actually not what love is, even though that's what the world thinks love is. But the truth is, is the church should be a place where believers can come and be accepted and loved and cared for. And this isn't a new command, really. This is just a reminder of a command that has already been given. And not even just from Jesus in the New Testament. This was a command in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You tack that on in the end just to make sure you're confused who is telling the instruction. And then Jesus said it too, right? In John 13, 34 through 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. 
By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The part that I think people like to, to skip out on that is the just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. Jesus gave his life for us. That's how much we should love one another. Now the good news is, is this love must actually already be happening, right? Because he's telling him to continue in it. He's not saying you need to start. He's saying continue in this brotherly love, but he does stress that you have to continue in it. Because that's the thing about uh, love. When you first get in there, it's all warm and fuzzy, and it seems like it's easy. But then, you know, after you get to know people a little bit, and the quirks come out, and you rub each other the wrong way, that's when it starts to get hard. But it, it doesn't say, you know, love them while it's easy. It says continue to love one another. You see, that's the thing about family, is that when, when you're in a biological family, you can't just unfamily somebody. On Facebook, you can unfriend them. But in the family, you can't, there's no one family button. Even though some of us wish there was, I imagine. But there's no one family button. You're family. You can't walk away from that. And the truth is, and the church is like that too, we're family. And we have to love one another, even when it's hard, even when things are tough. You see, that's the thing about family is there's going to be disagreements, there's going to be hard times, there's going to be fights, there's going to be problems. The question is, how do you handle that? Because things are hard, do you get up and run away or do you come together and you work it out? That's what families do. But he stresses to continue to love one another. Because the reality is, is that we live in a world, just like they were facing persecution, we live in a world that is becoming more inhospi inhospitable for those of us who, who take the word of God seriously and our relationship with him seriously. And it's not bad here yet, but it's getting worse. And in some countries, you risk your life to love God and to serve Him. But the reality is, is that the love and the support that we show one another could be the key factor that allows you to continue walking with the Lord. There's so many people that have left the church because they, they come to the church and they're, ex they're expecting what the word says it's going to be, what, what we all like to say it's going to be in songs and we like to sing, but they come in and they're, they're hurt and they're, and, and they're attacked and, and they don't feel loved. And they don't continue walking with the Lord because they've been hurt in the church. Now, on one hand, I believe that, that uh, if that's you, you've ever been hurt in the church, don't let that scare you away. Stay. Like I said, it's a family. You work through it. But for all of us, we need to make sure that we're not doing any hurting, that we're continuing in brotherly love. There should never be a reason that people feel like they can't stay somewhere because they don't feel loved. We are to be living examples of Jesus' love to one another. And then as he goes on in verse 2, not just to one another, but to the world as, as, as well. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. The love that, that we show should not just be inward towards the body of Christ, but it should also be outward towards those who are outside the body of Christ. And he says, in doing so, you may not even realize, but you've entertained angels. And we see this right in the Old Testament. We see that, that, that people entertain angels without even knowing. Once they found out who, who they were talking to, they usually dropped down in worship and thought they were going to die, but they started out not even knowing who they were entertaining, right? Abraham did this. Gideon did this. Um, Lot did this. They didn't even know they were entertaining angels. 
You say, well, that's all well and good in the Old Testament. What about now? But this is what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 31 through 40. He says, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was strange, a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You never know the impact that you're going to make when you show your love to somebody else. The truth is, is that love should be the number one character quality of any Christian. And you demonstrate that you actually have this character quality by physically expressing love towards one another and to strangers. Amen. And he continues on in 13 verse 3. He says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Next he says, Remember those who are in prison as if you were in prison with them and those who are mistreated as if you are mistreated with them. The, 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 the point here is that they're to empathize. I can't even say the word now. I can, let me read it. Hold on. I'm hooked on phonics. Work for me. Empathize. They're to empathize with them. That ever happened to somebody? You get t- twisted in your head, and I just couldn't make the words come out right. Oh, that's what it is. <laughs> So last night we went to a concert, <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm sitting up there in the, in the top of the stand, and I'm realizing it's super loud, and I, I told my son, I'm like, son, I'm, I'm getting old, I can't handle this, and he's, he says, don't turn into a Jan on me. <laughs> oh, getting old is true, but I didn't feel bad, because I'm sitting there watching these guys, look, so we went and saw Toby Mac, and then David Crowder, David Crowder came out beforehand. Toby Mac's 57 years old. <laughs> Crowder's 50 years old. So I was younger than all the ones performing. They could handle it, but I couldn't. For some reason, it was loud up there. Hallelujah. Quit distracting me. We need to get back to this. We got stuff to get through here. He says, uh, he says we're supposed to, to empathize with those who are going through these things. And, and the, the, it seems to be that he's actually talking about Christians here. He's not just talking, he's not talking about uh, uh, someone who just murdered his whole family. He's talking about Christians. And the reason I say that is because he says, as those who are mistreated since you were also in the body. He's talking about other Christians in the body. And this is what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Paul said this, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Because this is all part of one body, one family when something good is happening to somebody else, we should be excited. And when something bad is happening to someone else, we should empathize with them. We should be there for them. We should make sure that we remember them. You know, if somebody's going through a hard time, remember them. Give them a call. Let them know that you care. We're one body. But even though I think that he's talking about one body, I think the principle also extends to those who aren't 
Christians. You never know the impact you could make on somebody's life by just being there for them. That's what Jesus said, and then we just read that big long verse. He says, when did you uh, uh, see me in prison and visit me? When you do it to the least of these, you've done it to him. The thing is, is that people in prison, they're, they're still loved by God. And God, can, I, I can still have a plan for their life. And there are so many people that have mistakes and bad pasts that God still uses. Matter of fact, some of our favorite heroes in the Bible have went through incredibly difficult situations. You know, we all know of David who, who committed adultery. But he was still known as, as a man after God's own heart. But it always amazed me. He messed up big time. And it cost him severely. But God never forsake him. He never left him. And God was still able to use him. You never know the impact of how you treat somebody else, in prison or not, how that could impact them. Make sure that we're showing love to them. And then in verse 4, it says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I mean, marriage is important to God. How we participate in sex is important to God. The thing is, is that it seems like that, all, that, that marriage and, and how we participate in sex is important to the world as well. The difference is, is they're, they're focused on making sure that these things are practiced in ways that are contrary to God. They're not honoring the marriage bed. They're doing it, it's, it's almost like they, they looked at the Bible and said, this is how we're supposed to do it. Let's do it in every way that is contrary to the design and intention of God in our lives. But it shouldn't be, for, be so for believers. You know, one of the things that most believers will get behind is, we'll, you know, we'll agree that homosexuality is a sin. And that's true. Yet all the while, we're perfectly okay with two people living together and having sex outside of marriage and coming to the church every single day, and nobody ever challenges them, them on that. The truth is, is all of those are sin. All of those are defiling the marriage bed that, that God intended. And it's, it's not that God doesn't want to, to it's, it's trying to steal everybody's fun. The truth is, is that God made sex. How many of you guys know that? God made sex. Sex is a good thing. God intended it for people who are married to have it and enjoy it. That's not a bad thing. Sex was implemented before the fall. Did you know that? Before the fall, he said for them to, to what? Be fruitful and multiply. If you didn't know, that's code for have sex. That's how it worked. I don't, think, I don't think reproduction happened differently then than it did now. God made sex for us to be used and enjoyed. It's not a bad thing. But it's just like every other sin. It's, sin is it's fulfilling a legitimate need by an illegitimate means. And that's what happens with the world is they're trying to fill a legitimate need with illegitimate means. But it shouldn't be so for believers. God's not trying to steal your fun. He's actually caring about you. God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. Since the very beginning, that's how it was. And he also intended uh, sex to be reserved for only those who are married. And like I said, it's not because God wants to steal your fun. It's because anything else is harmful to you. And people don't realize that. Everybody talks about casual sex, but there's no such thing as casual sex. Every time somebody has sex, there's a spiritual connection that happens. 
And when that's ripped apart, it damages people. And we don't, God doesn't want you to participate in that because he doesn't want you to get hurt. Just like we don't uh, let kids go play in busy highways. It's not because we want to, we just, they can't stand them having fun on the highway. It's because we don't want them to get hit by a car, right? Sexual sin is so dangerous that it's the only sin that we're told to flee from. Did you know that? Other sins you can stand and resist. Sexual sin, you need to take off. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. The only one we're told to flee for, you don't try to resist. You don't try to see how close you can get without touching it. You flee. You don't ever put yourself in a situation. You run from this kind of sin because it is so harmful to you. Then he goes on to say there's judgment from God for these things. There's going to be judgment from God for dishonoring marriage, for sex outside of the marriage, for sexual immorality. And it's just like when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.11, when he had that laundry list of things where people who weren't going to get into heaven were going to be judged by God. In verse 11 he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Here's the deal, that people that are, that, are, that are defiling the marriage bed, people that are living in sexual immorality, they're going to be judged by God, but you're a Christian, so don't do the things that people that are being judged by God for. You've been set free from all of this stuff. Like Paul said, such were some of you, but you were washed. You know, when we look at Corinthians, it's obvious these people were still participating in these things because he was correcting it. And he said, but such were some of you. You were these things but you've been washed, so stop doing them. As Christians, not honoring marriage, defiling the marriage bed, having sex outside of marriage, getting involved in all of those things should be something where we never entertain. Because a life lived by faith looks different, amen? And then in verses 5 through 6, he says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what can man do to me. This is another area that believers seem to struggle with, some without even realizing it. You see, the, the thing about money in today's society is it's kind of been, become our God in this consumer-driven society. Money is the end-all, be-all. Social status is derived by how much stuff you have and how much money you make. And really, they kind of go hand in hand. And we're always looking for more. But here, we're instructed to be free from the love of money. And that means that we're not to let it dictate our lives. We're not to let it be the reason that we make decisions in our lives. Instead, we should be content with what we have, no matter how large or how small. And let your obedience to God dictate how you live your life. Here he says, look, be free from, the, the, from, from love of money. Be content with what you have, because he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's this reality that, that uh, 
some people, even back then, this, this idea of money and having stuff was a sense of security. And he's saying, listen, don't let that be your sense of security. God will never leave you nor forsake you. And today, uh, the reality is, is that, that for so many people, our security is derived by how much money we have as well. And people tend to hold their jobs in higher esteem than God. Or we look to our savings or to our retirement for security. I remember during that the first huge recession we had was at a, a decade ago, maybe a little bit longer ago. When when the stock market crashed, people lost so much of their life. People were committing suicide because of how much money that they lost. Because their security was derived by their their, their savings and their, their retirement. And the worst part is if they would have just stuck it out, they would have more today than they ever thought was possible. But they were Instead of trusting God, they were trusting their retirement. And so many killed themselves over it. Now, I'm not saying if you've got a crappy job, don't look for a better job. I'm not saying if you can't pay your bills, don't try to find something that pays you a little bit more. I'm not talking about that. The difference is, is what is your focus? He doesn't say keep your life free from money. He doesn't say keep your life uh, free from, from, from making a, having a better job. He doesn't say keep your life free from all stuff. He says keep your life free from the love of it. I don't think God wants us to be destitute. I don't think he wants all of you to be rich either. Some of it would kill you. You see so many people win the lottery and then what happens to them? They get hooked on drugs and they, they, they squander it all away in, in, in a couple of years and they have less than what they had before plus mental issues and drug addictions and all kinds of other things. Sometimes... That's not a blessing, right? The, the, the scripture says the blessing of the Lord makes rich and adds no sorrow to it. Even though you might think it's a blessing, if it's not making rich and adding no sorrow to it, it's not a blessing from the Lord, even if it is a lot of money. The thing is, is we just have to make sure that the pursuit of money is not our primary focus of our life. And the reality is, is that no matter how much money you gather around you, it can never bring you true security it can never give you peace and it can never give you joy i've seen some people say online i don't know you can buy stuff with it and that makes you happy well that's the thing there's a difference between joy and happiness happiness is temporary and fleeting you know you, you get an ice cream cone you're like i'm happy and the wind blows and it falls off and now you're not happy anymore but I tell you what, whether I get to eat my ice cream or it falls off, nothing can steal my joy because I derive that from the Lord. Money will never give you joy. Maybe some temporary fleeting happiness and then you realize just like everything else that it's not enough and you have to do something more. But Jesus is with us and he promises to never leave nor forsake us. We can find our security in him. And we can know that no matter how bad it gets, he is with us. And he even goes on to say, we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear because what can man do to me? As I was writing this down, it's always a funny phrase when I think of it. But what is the worst that man can do to you? He can kill you. And I know that seems like a weird phrase because killing is pretty bad. <laughs> but that's the worst he can do. He can't steal your joy. Man can't steal your, your, the promises of God from you. He can't uh, steal your, your uh, inheritance from the Lord. 
And the thing that we all just don't understand is because we don't have any comprehension of eternity, right? Everything that we know is based on time. Everything that we can relate to is based on time. So we think, uh, uh, you know, 80, 90 years is a long time, but we don't understand eternity because we, we don't have any, uh, anything to relate to being outside of time. So, so intellectually, we kind of say, yeah, eternity is longer than the life we're going to live but we don't really grasp how much so. <laughs> you know, one of my, my favorite analogies for describing eternity, which is still a poor one, but is if you had a marble, a mar- uh, you know, the marble, the rock, you know, a, a marble sphere the size of the earth, and you had an eagle fly around the earth, and every time he made one pass, he reached down and he brushed it with his wing. When the the, the marble the size of the earth is worn down to, the, to an actual marble, that's just the beginning of eternity. But even that is relatable by time. <laughs> we don't get it. So the worst that can happen is, that the man can do to you is, is you'll be killed. But that doesn't steal your eternity or what, anything that God has given you. And the truth is, is that we are going to leave behind Everything that we have on this earth one day, whether man kills you tomorrow or you live out to, to, to the full age that you're, that you're going to live and you're, you're, you're old and you live your last breath naturally, you're still leaving it all behind. And you still have your inheritance. So make sure you keep your life free from the love of money. And instead, just make a bunch of it and, and make sure it supports the kingdom of God. Amen? Make that your focus and your obedience to Him. Verse 7, it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. (laughs) Now, these verses are always hard for me to preach on. (laughs) Remember your leader. Hey, look at me. Remember me. It it always seems, and I wonder (laughs) when when we have, see, this is is where it's nice to have a a guest speaker come in. and say this stuff because then it doesn't look like I'm just pointing at me. And I wonder if, if the author of Hebrews, like if he had the same, like when he wrote this down, I wonder if he's like, is this going to be weird? Like, but the truth is he wasn't just talking about just himself either. And, and this, is, this, is, this is good advice. Those who would come and minister to the Hebrews had provided an example for them to follow. And the leaders here that he's referring to is likely those founding fathers of, the, of this church that he's speaking to. The author was probably one of them. There may have been others. But these were men who came and ministered the word of God to them. And these leaders had come and they had copied Christ's example. And they had trusted the Lord and, and lived a life by faith. And this is what this writer is saying. He's saying, you know what? You need to look at those leaders. Remember them. Even the word where he talks about remember your leaders, it might be that some of these leaders have already passed. They're not even with them anymore. But he says remember them and, 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 and take a, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. How many know that there are some lives that are worth imitating? And the same is true for godly leaders today. There are some lives that are worth imitating. So we want to see their lives and remember it and imitate their faith, imitate their lives. And I know personally, I try to live my life in such a way that anybody could imitate my life and my faith. And for those of you that have been Christians for a long time, 
You've been, you're mature in your faith or are currently leaders right now. Make sure that you're living your life in the same way. Live your life in such a way that, that, that younger or more immature Christians could look to your life as an example of how to live. Be the example that younger believers can look to to, to imitate. Amen? And then in verse 8, he goes on and says, Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Times change. Culture changes. But Jesus never does. That's why we can read his words and know that they still apply to us today. We can read these commands that are coming out here and go, oh, that's not just for the Hebrews. That's just for us today. And we know that his will is the same today. That's why you can read what Jesus did and not have to, 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 to think that, that God works in mysterious ways. We know what Jesus' will was because we read about it. We have a record and Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. So that means we know what the Father's will was as well. And it doesn't change. He didn't have uh, one way of living for them back then and things are different for us now. We don't have to interpret the Bible through the lens of our own culture and say, oh, that was old-fashioned. We have to change it a little bit to make it work for us today. And the truth is, over time, that leaders are going to change and that teachers are going to change. And like we just said, we would do well to emulate them insofar as they emulate Christ. But the problem is that all too often people try to shift or distort what Jesus taught to fit what they want it to be. And we have to be diligent not to be led astray. So one of the strange ideas, uh, one of the uh, religious ceremonial rules that he's talking about here, the diverse and strange teachings, seem to be regarding food. That's what he says here. He says, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. So the problem was, is they're dealing with people that are coming out of Judaism and they're still holding on to all these ideas of what foods you can eat, what food is, is good for you, what food is bad. You know, they, they had all the, the religious rituals and rules about what food they could eat. And Paul dealt with this as well with the other churches saying, hey, it's not about what you put in your body that's the issue. And he's saying, listen, the, the food that you eat is not the issue. He says, hearts are strengthened by grace, not by foods. And being devoted to these old teachings, these, these strange and diverse teachings as he was talking about, it wasn't benefiting them because only faith in Jesus would benefit them, not following these old religious rituals. And this is because God's approval is given as a result of grace, not keeping religious rules. That's why the, 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 if you look at this book, the, the primary purpose of this book is to demonstrate the supremacy of Christ so that they wouldn't go back to their old ways. It's like, look, Jesus is the better way. Don't get wrapped up in your old ways. But today I see strange and twisted teachings trying to gain a foothold as well. It's called progressive Christianity. The idea that we can mold Jesus and his teachings into what we want. And when I say we, I don't mean us here. I'm talking about the current culture. 
We can, we can twist his words into being what we want it to say. And, and we, can, we can view the scripture in light of the, of the lens of our current culture. And we can say, oh, yeah, um, that was just old time stuff. God's not really against sexual immorality right now. That, that was just back then. We need to look at it through, the, through the, the view of our culture today. And they begin to twist or ignore Scripture to make it fit what they want it to fit. And as a result of that, they, they either, like I said, twist or ignore Scripture and they say all sorts of sexual immorality is permitted. One of the worst ones I've ever heard was I heard one progressive uh, Christian, one progressive preacher say that uh, Jesus was racist. Yeah, but he recognized it and he repented. And this was the story of the Gentile woman, right? And, and she was asking for, for, for uh, something from Jesus and he said, you know, it's not good for the, uh, it's not right to throw the children's bread to the dogs. And they said, oh, yep, that was Jesus being racist. He called her a dog without actually looking at the context or even the culture back then and what was going on. What he was saying there was, was, was not calling her a dog. What he was saying is that, that, that basically this is for the family, not those outside of the family. But he says, it's not right to throw the children's bread to the dogs. He says, oh yeah, that was Jesus being, being racist. But you know what? When she challenged him, he recognized it and he repented and then he granted her request. Which, <laughs> the absurdity to me is like, well, you do realize that if Jesus needed to repent that means that he sinned and if jesus sinned how could he be the perfect lamb for our sins if jesus sinned we're in a mess guys here's the thing we need to make sure that we're never led astray by these false and strange teachings and you do that by knowing your word and sometimes that means you need to to put some time in and actually study it not just a cursory read that's a start. If you're not reading it, start with the cursory read. Get there first. And then begin to study to understand what it's saying so that way when somebody comes and presents a diverse and strange idea, you know it is what it is. And you can reject it. Amen. Now you remember, he just got done talking about those who were trying to bring back these, these Jewish, uh, Judaic rituals about food. And then he goes on to verse 10 and he says, but we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So the tent here is referring to the Jewish tabernacle, those who serve the, the end of the Jewish tabernacle. And here's the reality is that uh, fundamentally, Christianity and Judaism are so different that those who serve in the tabernacle, in the tent here, um, they have no right to eat at our altar. Now, I recognize that Christianity comes from Judaism. It all started there. But at some point, there's a major shift. And to break this down, to, to, to make it easier to understand, it means you can't um, live according to the law and grace. The two are mutually exclusive. And I'll be careful when I say that. I don't mean that if you live under grace, then you can just live however you want. The reality is that if you live under grace, the law is being fulfilled through what Jesus did. That means that if you're truly set free, then you're not going to sin because you're free from that sin. It doesn't mean that you have a license to sin, amen? Just to be clear on that. But you can't live according to the law and grace at the same time. You can't live uh, a Jewish, a completely Jewish under the law and also live under grace. 
It's one or the other. James said it like this in James 2, 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you should love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sins and are convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do commit adultery, but do, if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. To break that down in simple words is if you're going to follow the law, you have to follow the entirety of the law. So that means if you break one part of the law, you've broken all parts of the law and therefore are guilty. But if you're under grace, then the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and your forgiveness comes from him, your righteousness comes from him, not because you did or did not break some individual law, but because of the work that he did on the cross. But if you choose that I'm going to follow the law, then you have to follow the entirety of the law and grace is of no benefit to you. And that's what he's saying here. And then he continues on in verse 11 through 14, where we'll end, finish up today. He says, For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. So just to give you the picture of what's being talked about here, when the old priest would sacrifice stuff, that that wasn't used, it wasn't eaten, had to be burned outside the camp. It wasn't just given to anybody. It was, had to be eaten by the Levitical priests and all those, and it couldn't just be go anywhere, so it had to be burned outside the camp. And the picture here, and this is once again this idea that what Jesus did was, was, was a fulfillment, was, a, was a, uh, uh, actually doing what all the, the, the stuff before was intending to do. He fulfilled it perfectly, but it says that, that they took the sacrifices outside the camp, and Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, and he was outside the camp. And he's once again reiterating this idea that Jesus was superior in what he did to what the law tried to accomplish. He was a better sacrifice. The law and its rituals and religious ceremonies was just an earthly representation of what Jesus accomplished fully in the heavenly realm. And he says as a result of that, Christians should be willing to suffer and endure as he did because we are looking forward to something different something that is better the reality is is that our citizenship is in heaven it's not here we are just sojourners in this land temporarily passing through this this 80 to 100 years that you live is just a blip you're passing through so what that means for us is that we, for, for them particularly, they need to move outside of these, the, the safe and familiar ways of their past, the tradition and ceremonies that they used to, to live, live, live uh, in and for. They need to move away from that stuff and start living for Christ. And for us, that means that we need to live lives obedient to Christ, forgetting our past and all the things that we are dealing with. As Christians, our past is, is much uh, more diverse than where we come from. Some come from different religions, some come from legalistic Christianity, some come from, from all different walks of life, and even not having any at all, we have to forget those things and instead live for Christ. 
even if the culture is shifting and beginning to view us with reproach. The reality is, is that we may need to suffer and endure at some point. That's what he says. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. It means, it means go and be willing to suffer, to endure, to, to, to face persecution, to deal with all these things. Be willing to do that. But like the heroes of the faith that he talked about a couple chapters ago, we talked about all those heroes that, that died not inheriting the promise but looking forward to the promise, we're to do the same thing, to walk in faith. Even if we're suffering, even if we're enduring, we should be looking forward to the promises instead of giving in to passing and temporary reprieve from whatever's going on in our culture, amen? He says, look, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We're looking forward to something better. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.